Thank you. So, uh, with that said, we're going to be focusing primarily on the resurrection, but, but what that all means and thinking some about the ascension and his, his coming judgment. But we'll talk more about um, final judgment. I think, I think I want to do it next week, but I'm not sure. Um, so, with that, let's pray. Lord, we do praise you that you have uh, set this day aside um, to gather your people, um, people that you have set apart to be holy uh, and to proclaim the excellencies of your glory. And so we do pray that you would lead us now uh, to consider the wonders of uh, the work of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. So last week was a focus on uh, what our tradition calls the humiliation of Christ, uh, a way to think about Jesus becoming human, being born of a woman, uh, under the law, living a life filled with suffering and sorrow, uh, and then, of course, climaxing in his death and his uh, descent into hell. Today, we are on the flip side of that, so his exaltation. So beginning on that first Easter morning um, is when we consider him exalted. So I'm going to read, I realize some, this, this is not the best teaching tool, but I'm just going to read some of the larger catechism. It just parses things very well, very nicely. And then we're going to spend the bulk of our time focused on the resurrection. All right. Um, so the question here, how was Christ exalted in his resurrection? Christ was exalted in his resurrection in that not having seen corruption in death. That's what Peter mentions in Acts 2, quoting from the Psalms, of which it was not possible for him to be held. And having the very same body in which he suffered. That's important. We'll come back to that. With the essential properties thereof but without mortality and other common infirmities belonging to this life, really united to his soul, he rose again from the dead the third day by his own power, whereby he declared himself to be the Son of God, to have satisfied divine justice, to have vanquished death, and him that had the power of it, and to be Lord of the quick and the dead, or the living and the dead. All which he did as a public person, the head of his church, for their justification, quickening in grace, support against enemies, and to assure them of their resurrection from the dead at the last day. So there's a lot. You could spend the whole day on this one. Um, he, they, they parse things. I'm not actually sure why they say by his own power, because that is not how Scripture normally puts it. It's usually by the power of the Spirit, or the power of the Father. Uh, so that's a little peculiar to me, but otherwise, um, a lot of this is straight out of Scripture. How was Christ exalted in his ascension? We often forget the ascension. We try to bring it back in this church uh, as a major, major theme. Uh, both the ascension and sitting at the right hand of God are, are almost the same act. Uh, it's his enthronement. Christ was exalted in his ascension and that having it after his resurrection often appeared unto and conversed with his apostles 
speaking to them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, giving them commission to preach the gospel to all nations. Forty days after his resurrection, he, in our nature, and as our head, triumphing over enemies, visibly went up into the highest heavens, there to receive gifts for men. There's the Ephesians 4 passage from a couple weeks ago. To raise up our affections there, thither, and to prepare a place for us where he himself Himself is and shall continue till his second coming at the end of the world. Notice he is still human. He did not discard his human body. That would be terrible news. Because then we wouldn't have a human in heaven that we are united to that reigns in our place. Remember, we reign with him, according to Ephesians 2. And then how is Christ exalted and is sitting at the right hand of God? Christ is exalted and is sitting at the right hand of God that in that as God-man he is advanced to the highest favor with God the Father with all fullness of joy, glory, and power over all things in heaven and earth and doth gather and defend his church and subdue their enemies, furnisheth his ministers and people with gifts and graces. So that's, that's actually Ephesians 4, right? Giving gifts and graces and maketh intercession for them. Do you guys want to ask about any... Any specific things of this? We're going to spend a lot more time on the rest of the time today on the resurrection specifically, but just some of like the, any of the technical language or it is amazing and we never want to forget how important the ascension and the sitting at the right hand of God. Psalm 110 is the most often quoted verse in the New Testament. And that's the verse that says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so, over and over, they don't, the gospel, they don't stop at his death, certainly. They don't stop even at his resurrection. He is now exalted. He, the reality of the world is such that there is one capital K, King, and it is the God-man. Yeah. I really like that um, Jesus sitting at the right hand, he's there interceding yeah. for us too, yeah. as our advocate. That's right. He is, he is our advocate or our, remember Jesus says, I'm going to send you another comforter. So Jesus was the first one. Or another advocate, Jesus was the first one. So the Spirit, in concert with Jesus himself, is working in us to bring us to the Father. And from last week, we, we tried to remember that he's not... You don't want to picture Jesus as trying to twist the arm of the Father to say, come on, you should love them. They're great after all. Uh, it's the Father who sent Jesus in the first place. So they, they are one in, in mind. And sitting at the right hand, just to be clear, is a metaphor. Uh, right? Sitting at the right hand is the ancient way to talk about your right-hand man, if you will, the, the one with all the power and authority. So he has been exalted in that way. And we think also of Daniel 7, where the Son of Man receives all authority. So he's already, he's already done that. He's already received all authority. 
So when he comes again, it's not going to be anything new in that sense. All right. Um, let's, uh, all right, I'm going to read these quickly, but then I want to get to the rest, to the resurrection. Uh, how does Christ make intercession? He makes intercession by his appearing in our nature, continually before the Father in heaven. Remember, he's in our nature. That's why we can say we are united to Christ, which is an amazing thing. We are united to the one who is the human king of all also being God, in the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring his will to have it applied to all believers, answering all accusations against them, hallelujah, procuring for them quiet of conscience, hallelujah, remember what Jesus says about you to the Father, not what you say about yourself or the devil or other people say about you, notwithstanding <coughs> daily failings, access with boldness to the throne of grace, and acceptance of their persons and services. We are striving. Everything is meant to be in Christ, quite literally. Our persons and our services, what we do. And then he's also going to be exalted in his coming again. In that he who was unjustly judged and condemned by wicked men shall come again at the last day in great power and in the full manifestation of his own glory. So that's not the way he came the first time, right? He didn't come in the full manifestation of his own glory. He, come, he came veiled as a human, humiliated. And of his fathers with all his holy angels, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God to judge the world in righteousness. Most of that is straight out of scripture. Any questions or specifics? Because we're going to sort of turn, turn here. Yes, I think that's right. And think of, think of what a priest does. A priest, intercession is priestly language, so a priest represents God to the people and represents the people to God. In this case, it's representing the people to God. And so he, he has continual access to the Father, and he brings us with him there. Yeah. Which is amazing. Amazing. No. Right. He doesn't have to die over and over. He doesn't have to remind them, remind him. Um,
Yeah, I, I think so. I guess I don't like the word remind, uh, as if the father forgets. He doesn't forget. So he's, he, remember in the mystery of the Trinity, there is distinction and unity. And so he's, he's declaring to the father uh, who, his love for the people. Are who, and, and the father is, is always already saying, these are the people I love. So it's not, it's not a bargain. It's not, don't forget. It's, it's just a continual expression of love, I think. We're also thinking of it as, as we live sequentially. Well, yeah, there's that too, the whole space and time continuum and how that works. Yeah. Does that help? A little? <laughs> Oh, the Catholic Mass, you mean? Yeah. yeah, probably. There's definitely a part of that. So he's not, he's not needing to be sacrificed again, for sure. But Hebrews, this is, a lot of this is from Hebrews, so the sense of there's a heavenly temple that Jesus is the perfect priest in. He's done the work, and so now we're sort of enjoying the access and the presence that we can have there. And so we pray on earth as it is in heaven. His work is complete. Yes. 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 That's right. It's a and it's an application, just like we call we we say redemption accomplished versus redemption applied. So. The work he's doing now is applying what he's already done. Yeah. And as more and more enemies become his footstool, it's like as more and more people repent and believe in his work. All right. Let's, uh, let's move on. I, I want to walk through. A lot of this is from N.T. Wright's book called Surprised by Hope. Uh, he also wrote an 800-page book on the resurrection, uh, which I have not read all of, unfortunately. But it's worth it's worth it. Uh, this is this is shorter, and so just trying to understand what exactly do we mean when we believe in the resurrection of Christ? Okay. So first, some context. What did it mean in the ancient world? The ancient world, with the exception of Jews, was adamant that people did not rise again. And the Jews did not believe that anyone had done so or that anyone would do so all by themselves in advance of the general resurrection. So for ancient pagan and ancient Gentile, the road to the underworld ran only one way, right? You have all these ancient myths of people trying to go down to Hades, come back. doesn't usually go well. Resurrection to them was used to denote new bodily life after whatever sort of life after death there might be, whether they denied it or affirmed it. Resurrection always meant a two-step narrative in which resurrection, meaning new bodily life, would be preceded by an interim period of bodily death. It always meant life after life after death. That's what resurrection simply means. So when we say resurrection, 
we're going to mean something very similar. Okay? So in the ancient world, everybody knew about ghost spirits, visions, hallucinations, and so on. Most people in the ancient world believed in such things. They were quite clear that wasn't what they meant by resurrection. Resurrection meant bodies. This is an important thing, I think, especially apologetically. We have this sense, we're, we're so proud of being modern people that we have this sense that ancient people would believe in anything. So how hard could it be that, to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Because didn't they always believe in such things? And the answer to that is no, absolutely, absolutely not. That's not true. It's not easier for an ancient Gentile to believe this, and it's not easier for an, a Jew either. Which, which is what he means by uh, none of them believe that one person would do so before the general. So ancient Jews, even though most of them believed in a resurrection, except the Sadducees, they're sad, you see. They're sad because they don't believe in the resurrection. They believe, uh, besides them, they, Jews would believe that they would raise, God would raise uh, his people on the last day as a kind of vindication. But certainly not somebody uh, ahead of that vindication. So I'm certainly not an expert on this, but I think this is helpful to realize the context. Um, any, any thoughts or questions? So Wright in his big book... Yeah, perfect. That's right. That's right. Yep, perfect. Validated for dry bones. And also Daniel, the end of Daniel. Daniel 12. That's where you have all, even the division, I think, of, of those who are righteous are raised to everlasting life. Those who are unrighteous, everlasting death. It was only ever at the very end of history. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Why are there so similarities between? Oh, yeah. I, I, certainly, common grace would would be why they're they're asking. They they have you know they're made in God's image, so they have some sense of the truth. But I think the point here is that there's not similarity that between the spiritualities and resurrection. So I think the point here is it's very different to believe in spirits and ghosts, visitations from the dead, whatever. Even visitation from someone in Hades, that's not a resurrection. So his point is there's something distinct about resurrection, and that would mean a 
bodily life after you've already done whatever it is that happens at death. And I don't, I'm not aware of like neo-pagan spirituality today that is different than that, you know, that, that does believe in resurrection in that way. All right, um, seven, so next page, page 69. Um, some really helpful uh, ways that resurrection gets redefined in Christianity. All of this is sort of pointing to the fact that what could explain these things happening, N.T. Wright is a historian, what could explain these things happening other than the actual resurrection? All right. E pluribus unum, I, I, I use that kind of facetiously, but it's like out of many there became one. So of all the backgrounds of those who became Christian and of all the other debates, and as we read our New Testament, we see there are a lot of debates, right? Lots of division. Christians were totally united and unanimous on what resurrection meant and that it occupied not just center stage, but the whole stage. It became such a central thing. In Acts, at the very beginning, even when they're replacing Judas, they say, this person has to have been with us from the beginning and been a witness of the resurrection. And that's what they are throughout Acts. They are witnesses of the resurrection. So it's gone from the circumference, meaning Jews believed it as sort of one among many things, to the center thing. There is no Christianity without it. It went from a vague prediction, like maybe Ezekiel 37 or Daniel 12, to a sharpened certainty that it will be a transformed body because of Jesus' body itself that they experienced. Uh, the split, that's, that's my term, the coming of the end happened to one person in the middle of history in advance of its great final occurrence, anticipated and guaranteeing the final resurrection of God's people at the end of history. Hallelujah. That's what the Jews did, could never have made up. Because they had no reason to think that that's the way it would happen. So that's why we can say we are in the end times. We are in the final days. Right? Not because of some weird decoding of a mysterious number game, but because the end has already begun in Jesus. And so much so that it guarantees the end. All right? You guys want to ask anything about that? That's a big one. So it's not a question of, like, will the resurrection happen or will we have bodies at the resurrection or those sorts of things. It's only when. It's not good just... For, it's good counsel for today, today's world. Yeah. That the crucifixion and the resurrection is the whole stage. The whole stage, yeah. It's good counsel. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? Like, as opposed to dwelling on something else. Yeah. Yeah. All the other yeah. Yeah. Right. We really don't have to talk about a whole lot else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah? And notice this isn't just a, a vague hope. This isn't just God saying, hold on. I'm going to do something later. This is saying, although he is, of course, saying that. 
This is actually saying, I've already done it. That's why the hope can be so secure. It's already begun. Right? The movie's already been made. It's in post-production. We have the trailer in Jesus. Or something like that. So it's more than just a vague hope. That's why we always want to focus on Jesus when we speculate. Because if we want to know what is the final resurrection going to be like, well, what was it like for Jesus? Well, for starters, he had a human body. It was transformed in mysterious ways, but it was certainly human. Okay? Um, other ways that it got redefined, collaborative to work with Jesus, thereby to anticipate the final resurrection in personal and political life and mission and holiness, transforming the present as far as they were able in the light of that future. This is uh, basically what, how we can pray, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. He already is raised in heaven. And so we ought to live accordingly. It becomes a new metaphor, uh, and he is declared the Messiah because of the resurrection. We're going to come to important reasons there. Uh, let me just go through this quickly. Sorry, there's just two. I, I couldn't cut anything out, so read it later. Uh, sorry. Uh, some amazing things that just point to the historicity of the resurrection accounts uh, and why it could never have been made up. We already mentioned some. A couple other points. There are no biblical echoes. There's not, they don't quote scripture, which is interesting. Like even Matthew, he's quoting scripture the whole time. And then I think it's because there's something so fantastically new. Even though it is fulfilling all scripture. It's fulfilling the res restoration of Israel that was promised. The presence of the women, we've, we've said that I think a lot in different contexts. You just would not make up a story and have women who were seen as untrustworthy, unreliable, couldn't provide testimony in court as the first witnesses. Uh, the portrait of Jesus is not predicted in any Old Testament way like this. It is transformed, but it's not magic. He does seem to kind of walk through walls, but he's still human. They can touch his wounds. Uh, they recognize him, but not always. So it seems like the not recognizing is the spiritual, it's too hard to believe sort of thing. Right? The, in Luke 24, they recognize him at the breaking of bread, even though he's just taught them a bunch of scripture. Because it's too fantastic to believe this could really be Jesus. And, and I think the other thing that sticks in my mind is that he eats. Yeah, he eats too. Yeah, and he makes them a meal. Yeah. Yeah. I often wonder whether in heaven food will be available or necessary. Probably available, but not necessary. I don't know. Well, and just to point out the distinction is there. It's different to say what will food be like in heaven, and what will food be like in the new heavens and new earth. So it seems like there will certainly be food in the new heavens and the new earth at the bodily resurrection. I don't know if there's food in heaven. Like when we die before the second coming, 
since we won't have bodies. And that's, that's another point is how much uh, it becomes about Jesus reigning now. The stories of the first Easter. Um, just note, again, just some, some important notes. Jesus' grave did not become a shrine. He's not like a martyr uh, because he's alive. You don't make a shrine of, of a dead person. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, these these are just he's just pointing out the specific resurrection stories in the gospels. So not that he didn't say I'm going to be raised or there's other indications of it or that it wasn't predicted even, but Yeah. Um early church's emphasis on the first day of the week, remember the Sabbath was such a big deal, so for a Jew to say something has been so utterly fulfilled that we're going to worship on the first day instead of the last is like a whole new paradigm, whole new life. All right. I'm going to skip that long quote. Many of you have probably already heard it. Uh, basically, it is saying nobody would follow a crucified leader. It's just not how it works. Crucifixion means you lost. Unless you're raised. Um, let's see. We could do those. We could do that. All right. All right. We, we're doing all right. We've got 15 minutes. Um, so ways that Jesus' redemption gets described because of the resurrection. So I'm on the bottom half of 70. Its resurrection is described as a first fruits. Thinking literally of the farming metaphor, the first fruits, you give God your first fruits because everything already belongs to God. And this is saying, like, here, take this. So our, even our tithe is a kind of first fruits. It's not the last batch. And so Jesus is described as the first fruits of our resurrection. So first he's raised, then we are. Hallelujah described as a victorious battle, which we've already seen as far as seated at the right hand of God. He's ascended. The resurrection is declared as a way that he put death to death. Remember, I put here, remember that's the only way he defeats death and so can properly reign over the world. He establishes his kingdom by subduing all possible enemies. So death, death is an evil that needs to be defeated. So we can treat de death differently as Christians, certainly, but we should never minimize it as an evil. So it's not just, oh, it's a part of life. You're kind of, you're drifting off into the next life. Don't worry about it. It's not that. It's not, it's not, it's a part of nature. Look, everything dies and comes back, dies and comes back, just like the seasons. It's not that. It's Jesus faced the ultimate enemy and came out the other end. And he need, he, if he doesn't rise bodily, then we still have bodily death as a fear and as a thing that reigns. So a big point for Wright, and I think he's, I think he's correct, is that 
if all we get is some disembodied existence after death, then Jesus didn't defeat bodily death and save the creation after all. Does that make sense? That may be great, and certainly it's not, we don't want to minimize the fact that when people die before the second coming, they, it seems like Paul is also convinced he will see Jesus face to face at his death in Philippians 1. So certainly that's wonderful. Hallelujah. And, what, and, and you have lost loved ones who are believers. I think you can give praise to God for that confidence. But even that's not the ultimate hope. The ultimate hope is that God would fully reign on earth with what he has created, redeemed. You guys want to ask about that at all? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And our confession has a wonderful section in Christian freedom, what we have been freed from. And one of them is we have been freed in this life. We have been freed from the sting of death, but not its presence. Right? We've been, we've been freed from the wrath of God. We've been freed from the curse of the law in this life. So it doesn't sting the same way, although it still stings. Anybody else? So this is also a, a, a bit of a shift of a paradigm where we are described as citizens of heaven colonizing earth. Philippians 3.20 is where he says, we are awaiting a Savior from heaven. So Jesus will come from heaven to earth to change our bodies and our world. So uh, N.T. Wright has a, has a hang-up against dispensationalists and fundamentalists. And sometimes we can react too hard against one and go to the opposite extreme. But this is, we need to be in healthy reaction to say, our hope is not to just escape the world. Right? We're not just giving a ticket to heaven and then saying, peace, good luck, you're on your way to hell. We are colonizing earth in the sense of we are setting up embassies of heaven on earth, waiting for the day that the embassy will become the whole world. So if you think of what an embassy is, we want to say the church is the embassy of the kingdom of God, where heaven is here now. We, can, we should be able to taste it and see it, feel it. And we pray and wait and, and work for it to spread. Heaven came down. Right. That's why we pray and wait and... Right. You mean other churches. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's imperfect. It's not necessarily... Not necessarily immediately... Because it's by faith, it's how we experience it now by faith, not yet by sight. Um, we still suffer under death, so he's defeated the sting, but we still grieve with it. 
yeah. all of this, whereas the world has no vision of it because God has come down. Right. Amen. There's a wonderful vision being offered. Um, God will be all in all. Sort of already said that. Um, he de it's described as a new birth. There's also why we want to say it's the focus on the, the new creation. Um, to include all of creation. And then the marriage of heaven and earth. So, so the new Jerusalem. I'll just read this quote. This is, this is pretty cool. The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. This is the vision in Revelation, the end of Revelation. It is not we who go to heaven, at least those who are still alive when Jesus returns. It is heaven that comes to earth. Indeed, it is the church itself, the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down to earth. This is the ultimate rejection of all types of Gnosticism. Of every, now, what was Gnosticism for those who were around when we were doing the person of Christ? If you're a Gnostic and you try to believe in Jesus, what do you believe? That he wasn't really human. That his human body was a sort of mask that he could take on and off. And then, so then the Gnostic hope would be to escape the human body and to escape this world to go off into some disembodied life. So this is the ultimate rejection of that because it is heaven come to earth. Which I think in The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis, one of those great images is that the grass there is harder. It, it, for the people visiting heaven who don't belong, the grass hurts their feet. So he's trying to say, like, they're more physical. And the people that are visiting and don't belong, they, he, one guy beats his chest, but it makes no noise. So he's less physical. Yeah. That if we were to escape, that's right. That would that would somehow undermine. Yeah. Perfection what was he doing this whole time? God's creation. That's right. You know that was corrupted and now we're being reborn. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so Gnostics have a hard time with the Old Testament. What do you do with a God who created it and wants to care for it? And or the Psalms where it's singing the glory of God. Right. Uh, of every worldview that sees the final goal is the separation of the world from God, of the physical from the spiritual, of earth from heaven. It's the final answer to the Lord's prayer. God's kingdom will come. It's will be done on earth as in heaven. I guess I already said a lot of this. Sorry. Uh, this doesn't mean that God will wipe the slate clean, start again. If that were so, there would be no celebration, no conquest of death, no long preparation. Now at last complete. So it's a new birth from the old. It's not a wiping the slate clean. It's a, you see it in, in our own lives, like, right? Conversion is you are being born again, but you are still the same person, and so you need to put the sin to death. He doesn't give you a new body yet. All right, we've only got about five minutes left. Um, anything you guys want to discuss or ask about? Do we have this book in the library that we can come and go and read it? Probably. Okay. 
One, one other thing, and maybe later today you can read, read these longer quotes, but he, he just makes a great point in, in saying how uh, Christianity is, is accused of being an opiate of the masses, meaning it's something, and, and a belief in the resurrection sounds like it could be that, that it just keeps you in your place because you're just waiting for the next life. Uh, you're, just wait, you're just trying to escape and you're waiting for what's going to happen. And, and his point is it's actually the opposite. Because if you believe that Jesus reigns and he's going to redeem this world, then the injustices or the evil or whatever in this, in this life do not threaten you. So you can work against them without fear. Like Jesus says, do not fear the one who can merely harm the body. So Marx and those guys were wrong, in case you wondered, about Christianity. Absolutely. And it gives you meaning to what you've received. It gives meaning to your body. So, yeah, in a couple of months we'll talk about sexuality and gender, and it's going to come back. It's very important because this is something that you've received. It's a gift. And then you can actually construct a meaning. Or, or you're not constructing it, but you discover meaning. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Right. I think we can go to the, sorry, I think we can go to the opposite extreme, and, and N.T. Wright has tendencies toward this, to say the painting that you draw is bringing the kingdom. And I don't think we can quite say that. Um, it's, there's still going to be this cataclysmic change when Jesus returns. So we want to be able to affirm both continuity, and again, you look to Jesus himself for this, continuity between his human body and discontinuity. And so both, we, you can tend towards one extreme or the other. So if you tend toward discontinuity and say it's going to be totally different, that's the, I have my ticket to heaven and the world's going to hell in a handbasket. That's the one extreme. But you can tend towards the other extreme and say there's going to be so much continuity that any good thing I do is going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's actually bringing the kingdom of God. It's like, no, you still need Jesus to reign for the kingdom of God to come. Right? So, so making a beautiful painting is, is not bringing the kingdom. It may point to the kingdom. It may give voice to it. It may give you know, be motivated by it, but it's not bringing it in that same way. We talk a lot about our human relationships too, though. Continuity. Colleen and I are so excited that we'll still be deep friends in heaven, but we're not going to be married to Christ. You know, this is 
religion and witness to our friends here, you know, a secular proposal that you want to marriage to completely define them. Yeah. Marriage is beautiful, but it points to a greater unity. Yep. Yep. Which is what the sermon is going to say, too. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and you can go out and discover it, which is why modern science came in a, out of a Christian exactly. worldview. It came in from a Christian place because you could know that this was set up with order, with purpose. All right, let me pray. Lord, we do give you uh, praise and honor. There, there is still so much we don't know. And don't understand, but we give you praise for uh, what you have revealed, that you have put death to death in Jesus. And we pray that we would be able to live uh, according to that wonderful truth. Uh, Lord, would you give us more and more a sense of uh, your kingdom, your reigning, uh, that you already reign in heaven. Would you reign more in our hearts, in our lives, in our church, and in our society. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.